Welcome to Parallax by Anka Kalra, a podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology and the best from the US Cardiology Review. Published every second Monday, Anka Kalra, MD, interventional cardiologist at the Cleveland Clinic in Ohio, USA, speaks with legendary cardiologists, reviews late-breaking trials, and interviews authors of our latest and best US cardiology review articles. We call them hashtag audio articles. Parallax is the effect whereby the position or direction of an object appears to differ when viewed from different positions. So this podcast is your fix of reliable updates on all things cardiology by someone from a non-traditional background who is always looking at the industry from a new angle. Now, here's your host, Anka Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. I have uh, the honor and the pleasure of having with me um, on the show today um, a guest who I don't even know how to describe, uh, someone very close to me. Um, I consider him, um, you know, my mentor. Actually, I consider him my father. Um, anytime there has been an issue, either personally or professionally, the first person who's come to my mind uh, is, is him. Um, I had the fortune of training under him, uh, and, uh, you know, he's been an incredible force, uh, you know, in both my personal and professional life, and has affected me in several different ways. I think if anyone has to model a career in academic interventional cardiology, it's him. Um, so beyond that introduction, um, I would say I have the absolute honor and pleasure and privilege of having with us on the show uh, Dr. Neil Kleiman. Uh, Dr. Kleiman is a professor of medicine at Will Cornell Medical College and director of the cardiac cath labs uh, at Houston Methodist uh, um, DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center. Dr. Kleiman, welcome on the show. Well, thank you, Ankur. You were much too kind in describing me, but I'm honored to be here, at least as honored as you felt uh, doing the interview. Thank you. Well, you know, for the audience, uh, this actually is also the first time um, we're recording live and in person. We're both in uh, San Francisco for the TCT 2019 conference. And this is the first episode where uh, we're recording live with, with, the, with the Parallax guests because all the other previous episodes have been, you know, conversations um, over the internet or on the phone. So, you know, I've always looked up to you, Dr. Kleiman, as uh, the role model for an academic interventional cardiologist, um, you know, with, um, with, with career that you've established in, in translational science, um, and uh, you know, uh, the field knows that you're a platelet guru, uh, and you know, with how you've uh, managed to be clinically um, uh, productive and clinically relevant and directing the cardiac cath labs at uh, a world-class center for cardiovascular medicine, um, and also being at the cutting edge of clinical research when it comes to transcatheter valve therapies. Um, so you've sort of, you know, checked all boxes of, you know, being relevant clinically, being relevant in clinical research, and also doing translational work. So there's not a better person or a better guest to actually talk about how to establish a career as an academic interventional cardiologist, because, you know, you and I were talking when we were at the posters that it's, it's incredibly hard. It is difficult. Actually, I'm not sure it is. I don't think I found it difficult to establish an academic career. That is not the same as saying it's smooth, it's easy, 
and it's always fulfilling. Those things it's not. But once you've decided that that's what you want to do, uh, things do start to fall into place. And you have to recognize that there are challenges. If your true interest is academics, there are lots of challenges. And you have to accept them really as markers of success. You have to decide that you've chosen a path. And I think the earlier you choose it, the less discomfort you're going to have along the way. And so what are those challenges? Uh, those challenges, I think, are several fold. I think one of the things that people always talk about is that there is, in medicine, a large salary differential. Now, the truth is, there is. It's probably smaller than it used to be, but physicians are not underpaid, although it always may feel that way. But you do pretty well regardless of what position you end up with. Other challenges that I think are probably greater and more difficult to overcome is that you have to wear multiple hats at the same time. And usually you have multiple bosses to whom you have to report. That's not so easy. And that takes a little more than just deciding this is what I'm going to do. So when people come to me and they say, what are the first things I have to decide? I tell them, number one, look at the long run and the fulfillment that you'll ultimately get by feeling that you've changed the world a little bit. And number two, try to streamline things. And that's very important. So what does that mean? Well, it means this. Uh, unless you're a basic scientist, uh, and I mean a true basic scientist, you're going to have significant clinical responsibilities. I think that is going to increase in intensity rather than decrease, just because of economic pressures. What's important is that you try to keep things within a narrow realm. If you're going to be interested in, well, even more than that, your research needs to be in the same area as your clinical expertise. So, for example, uh, and let me just make one up. Sure. If my interest is in interventional cardiology, uh, I don't want to be the guy investigating mechanisms of ventricular tachycardia or looking to discover new neurohormonal moderators of heart failure. It makes sense. Uh, it's easy to say, but not everyone does that. Some of these things may be very intellectually interesting, and some of these things are fascinating to read about when uh, you get some time and you're going through literature. You should read about other things. You should learn a little bit about them, but you shouldn't concentrate your efforts there. That diffuses your energy too much, and it makes it tougher to stumble across the small observations that you'll be able to run with, maybe write papers about seemingly minor observations, and then develop them into larger studies. Those are very important and 
Um, so certainly very important insights, but also insights that no one really talks about, right? When, when you go to, um, you know, conferences that are organized by uh, professional societies and, and state chapters, no one really gets into the nuances that, like you have. And I think that's why it's, it's important and it's crucial for, you know, someone like myself in the early career phase when we're still trying to figure out what are we going to do, what am, what, what am I going to do to be academically relevant. I think it's important to, to have that insight and that lesson. Um, you brought up something uh, which I would like to um, you know, go into, few, into more detail. And that is, uh, you, know, you said you'll probably have to report to multiple bosses. No, you will have to report you to will, multiple bosses. You will, OK. So we'll have to report if to multiple bosses. If you can't bosses. identify them, they're still there. And if you don't report to them, they're going to get you. So yeah, t talk to us a bit, a bit more about that. Like, you know, nuance, explain the nuance of that statement. Because, you know, I'd really like to like, get into the details and the specifics of that statement. Yeah, I'm not sure there are a lot of details that uh, have to be gotten into. But generally, if you're in interventional cardiology, you have a cath lab director to whom you have to report. You have a chief of cardiology to whom you have to report. Often there's a section chief. Then there's a hospital administration to whom you have to report. And in many circumstances, there's a chief of medicine, although whether you report to the chief of medicine or not sort of depends on the structure of your institution. But you know, you really do have to make these people pleased with what you do. You may not make them happy, but you have to recognize that the pressures, the needs, the things that they see as important aren't necessarily identical from one to the other. Mm -hmm. And you have to respect that. Mm -hmm. And you have to recognize it's not reasonable for everyone's goals and everyone's perceptions of needs to be aligned. So hospital administrators are generally concerned about uh, publicly perceived quality metrics. They're generally concerned about profit and loss. Uh, department chiefs are concerned about research. They're concerned about education. They're also concerned about quality. They're also concerned about profit and loss, maybe not identically to hospital administrators. So there's some overlap, and they're there's some things that are disparate. And that's why, for example, if you're flying an airplane and you look at the instrument console, there are multiple gauges on it because there are multiple things that have to be monitored. I think, I, I wish I were the person who came up with that analogy, but I'm not. But I think an academic career means monitoring all those gauges and recognizing that not all the needles will be pointing in exactly the same direction. That's really and, and good. And I'm not a pilot, by the way. Sure. I mean, that's that, that's a really good analogy. You know, it's uh, I've been what two years out and into my third year, and um, you know, I've found it incredibly hard. To, uh, so first of all, there is no quote unquote protected time for doing research. Right. Any time anyone tells you they'll protect your time, they're lying to you. Or they may not be lying, but they're, psychiatrists call it magical thinking. That's, that's a good way to put it. But, you know, so what, what I've realized is, 
It's, you don't have protected time, so you have to become very efficient uh, with time management. You also have to get very creative with time management. Um, you have to balance you know, your own health, family. You have to balance um, you know, academic productivity and obviously clinical responsibility comes first because like you said, the administration and even your department and division would really want you to be clinically busy. And I think it's important for interventionalists early on to get busy in the lab. I mean, it's... So that's very interesting. It is important. It's very important because if you don't have a clinical presence, you really don't have very much of anything. On the other hand, as a young interventionalist, uh, you want to be, uh, part of you wants to do as many cases as you can and as many complex cases as you can. And uh, basically when I was a young interventionalist, if someone said, hey, here are some shackles, put one on one leg, we'll chain you to the calf table and throw you a piece of meat every once in a while, I would have been delighted. But, you know, that, that doesn't always work. And the reason it doesn't is all these things take time. There are all sorts of extra lab things that go along with doing a case and that become part of your responsibility and should be your responsibility. But if you're doing too much of that, then you're not able to spend time developing the academic side of things. You're not able to pursue a research project. You get called out of important situations, laboratory, meetings, uh, uh, conferences that you absolutely have to be at. So it's important to keep that balanced. And, you know, part of the way uh, I did that is I said, look, uh, what do you do when you're doing a case? You leave your pager or your cell phone with someone else. Even if it's the cath lab staff, it's away from you and you have a good excuse to be focusing on the screen and the equipment that's lying right in front of you. And of course the patient. I'm not a golfer, but I would imagine golf is very much that way too. So in a sense, uh, doing interventional cases uh, takes the role of a pastime and a, a release. So you have to recognize that. It obviously isn't, it's very tense. You're responsible for some very critical moments in a patient's life. But uh, at the same time, there are other stressors that it enables you to dodge temporarily. Don't get addicted to it. View it as a part of your responsibilities. Enjoy it, love it for what it is, get, am I allowed to say damn? Yes. That's about the limit, right? Get damn good at it, but uh, recognize that it is a part of your responsibility. It's not everything you should be doing. Mm -hmm. That's a good analogy. You know, we've, um, so when I was recording this with, uh, with another speaker uh, on the podcast, Kavita Chinayan, who's, uh, uh, she's a cardiologist at uh, Beaumont in, in Michigan. And she's a, a meditator and a, and a yogi, and she's also she's uh, she's an imager, and she's she's also written several books, um, you know, on 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 meditation and. Well, in um, all fairness, I'm an imager too. Yes, all of there us. are different are. kinds of imaging. I agree. I agree. So you know, so what I was trying to get at was, um, when you said that that's a bit of a. Um, so being in the cat lab is sort of takes you away from 
all the other uh, aspects of busyness as, as a cardiologist that you they're, have. They're, they're stressors. Yeah, they're stressors. So um, I, what I was discussing with her was that the time in the cat lab is, is one time when I'm very mindful. Like, you know how you could be doing something otherwise when you're just not, so when you're not in a case, but like, so in, in front of a computer screen or, uh, you know, writing a paper or uh, addressing a page, you, you, your mind could wander into different directions. But when you're in the, in the cat lab, you're very mindful of everything that's happening in the moment, so at present. Um, so I, I completely agree with you. And, you know, then we sort of, we, we, we talked about how we could extrapolate that, that experience into other things that we do, which are not in the cat lab, so that we are very efficient and productive. Uh, for example, when we're writing a paper, we should just be thinking about what we're writing. Right. And if you can find a way to take your data and escape where you can't be reached, that's wonderful. Now, that doesn't necessarily fit well with being an interventionalist, uh, particularly if you're on STEMI call. Yes. You cannot turn your pager off. You cannot turn your phone off. Yeah. It would be wonderful to protect that time, but it's very difficult. Yes, it is. So how... how so I have a few questions, and I'm going to start asking them one by one. So the, the first question I have is, um, in, in the early career phase, how did you balance time in the cat lab versus being academically productive and relevant? How, how did you do that? Because, you know, everyone wants you to be, and you said that, that it's important to be busy in the cat lab, but it should not be everything. What, how did you sort of do that? Like, maybe break maybe break break down a week for us like what would a week look like for you yeah so first of all I have no idea how I did it and maybe it's because I wasn't that busy when I started out of course that means I was spending time trying to become busy um, I was very fortunate geographically in that my office location was very close to the cath lab so if I finished a case uh, it was a uh, 15-yard walk to go talk to the family, and then another seven or eight yards to get to my office. So that's a great example of uh, making sure that everything you do is in line, now is aligned and in line. I'm very fortunate in that aspect, but you know, I, to take uh, a different tack, I once asked Barry Collar, who was chief of medicine at Mount Sinai, and a very busy basic scientist, very productive. Uh, I said, Barry, you're chief of a huge uh, department of medicine, uh, and you run a busy lab. How do you do it? He said, well, it's really easy. I've set up my laboratory, so I can't get to the elevator from my office without walking through it. Um, if you can do that, do it. So that's so that's good. So that's good advice. It's good insight. So d would you manage? So y so time between cases, you would work on on papers, and you would work on writing stuff up. Right, and uh, you know there were enough little things to sure. be done that you know if, uh, even when I was doing when I started off, I did all the endomyocardial biopsies or a transplant program, um, you know, and that's rapid turnaround. So even 
during the turnaround period for the room, you know, there were things that I could do. Or sometimes I would sit in the control room and make phone calls. Mm -hmm. Some people can take their laptops into a control room and work between cases. I've always found that difficult. Yes, I've, I sort of did that. I've, I've done that, but not, uh, not routinely. But I've, I, I, have, I have sort of done that, and I've, I've gotten things turned around. You know, for example, like if I'm editing a manuscript or reviewing a manuscript, I could do that. And I've, I've, so there's a theme here, because you know, just in the past episode with, with Srihari Naidu, um, you know, we were talking about the, the same concepts of managing time between turning around cases and, and turning around rooms. And there is downtime between, between each case and how you can utilize that time to be, be efficient, not be antisocial. I mean, you do want to, you know, socialize with, with colleagues and, and with, uh, with GATLAB staff, but, um, you know, at the same time, also be efficient uh, and mindful of where the time is going, because there is time. Um, yeah, I mean, look, nobody likes long turnaround time. Mm -hmm. it, clinically, it drives you nuts. But, you know, there's an advantage in that if it's long enough, you can get a substantial amount of other work done. That is true. So let me, so, my, so moving to the next question then is how in your, so you are the director of the, of the CAT lab and you've mentored several young careers um, and you, you know, you run a fellowship program. Um, what are the elements that you're looking for when you are hiring um, a young faculty member into your division or your department? What, what are the elements that you're looking for? And then how do you monitor um, progress, progression in that person's career? So I want someone who's smart. Mm -hmm. I want someone who's clinically capable. I want someone who's going to get along with people, uh, who people are going to like, who's going to encourage growth in the lab, not someone whom no one will ever want to send a patient to. And then I want someone who's got academic interests, who's shown me that uh, they can write a paper, not that they can write a hundred papers, but that they've got an interest in amassing data, putting it together, and turning out a finished product. Mm -hmm. And obviously, I want someone who's got technical skills. You know, these days, I don't think it takes a lot of technical skill to do 99% of cases because the equipment is so user-friendly. But, you know, I want somebody whose clinical judgment is going to be there. Someone who's going to take care, be able to manage the, uh, what's a good way of saying bad? Manage say the, bad. <laughs> yeah, manage some of the bad things that can happen yeah. during a case. Yeah. So just the, the complexities of a case. And um, I want someone who's going to teach me something, too. Remember, education is never a one-way street. Mm -hmm. The, you know, the smarter they coterie that you surround yourself with, the smarter you're going to get. That's, that's an incredible point, and, you know, I'm not Bill surprised Gates that it's... Bill Gates said it, not me. I'm, I'm, no, no, I'm, you know, it's, 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 I'm not surprised that it's coming from you. You know, I've, I've, I've not heard that from a lot of people, but I'm not surprised that it's coming from you. Bill Gates was good enough. <laughs> so, um, so, so th these, are all, these are all great points, and thank you for sharing them. Um, and then just as a, a, an extension to this question is how do you, do you 
consciously monitor progress in someone's career. Like if, if you hired someone and now someone is three years out, four years out, uh, and is their junior partner, do you consciously or deliberately monitor progress and have you know, conversations with that, in, with yes. that individual you know, time, uh, time yeah, and again? Absolutely. And I encourage them also when there are questions that come up, uh, career decisions, come to me. So how, how do you do that? Like, what, 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 do, you, what do you go over with? Uh, do you go over academic progress? Do you go over clinical progress? How, like, how does that, how does that play out? Uh, clinical progress is pretty openly visible. Mm -hmm. uh, I've never felt compelled to ask anyone sure. how they were doing clinically, because I know what goes on in the hospital, I know what goes on in the clinic, and I especially know what goes on in the lab. Academic progress is a little tougher. I, frequently ask people what they're working on. Uh, what do I need to do to get them writing more if they're not writing much? Uh, so far, I really have found that pretty easy. Has that been a challenge? Because like, not, not everyone is as motivated to write, right? I mean, I, it's, and it's nothing against anyone, but it's well, just how... But, but remember, uh, you don't build a baseball team with nine pitchers. Uh, you don't build a section or department with everyone doing identical things. Some people are going to write more than others. Some people's academic interests are going to be stronger than others. Uh, some people are going to want to spend more time clinically than others. You have to recognize that and you have to respect that. Sure. And you have to have a balance. No, that's, that's a great point. So, and you know, academics could, does not, only mean like writing papers and and publishing papers it could also mean education right education for yeah. the cat lab staff or for education for fellows for for house staff participating in and education for the community as and well that's really important yeah i agree so do how do you how do you measure those um do you do you encourage those in in faculty or um yeah we we are told we have to do it, and we do. No, no one will ever argue with that. I don't know how to measure it. I mean, there are, you know, we live in an age of metrics. I'm sure that our institution is measuring these things very precisely. We're always asked what uh, extramural educational activities have you uh, led or participated in. I'm sure I'm a box on somebody's check sheet. That's okay. I know, I know what the people who, whom I'm responsible for, sure. are doing. Sure. Now, uh, so speaking of which, I mean, you know, Methodist has, has there is a, so so Methodist. Uh, so it's technically Houston Methodist. Houston Methodist. Houston Methodist. I apologize for just saying saying Methodist. Yeah, don't worry. Soon it'll be a full paragraph. It's now the Houston Methodist, DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center. So soon it'll be a full paragraph. Sure, I mean, so I'll say the Houston Methodist DeBakey Heart Center. Right, and then Center. we'll extend it some more, and you should see what'll happen to the domain name on the internet. <laughs> so, the, so there is, a, there is an education institute, right? Um, right. Uh, and uh, is that part of the new tower? Or is that something which is, infrastructure-wise, is that something which is separate from the Heart and Vascular Center? Um, well, the in infrastructure is really very interesting. It, 
the um, office they have, which has a full TV recording studio, is on the fourth floor of the building that you worked in, the Fondren Brown building. But if you walk into those, those offices, this is amazing stuff. It's a full television studio. Wow. Uh, it looks, and I would imagine acts, just like one of the network uh, TV stations that you see on the news. I actually have seen, I've, I've seen videos of it, um, you know, on, shared on social media, on Facebook and on LinkedIn, and it looked, I mean, I, I agree with you, it looked like an ESPN studio. Yeah, <laughs> and um, there's a similar recording studio in their office, and both of these actually are in the old building, on, if you're interested, on the fourth floor, one's about 10 yards from my current office. The other is actually in, um, it's in one of the old cath labs. So clearly the department has invested um, into education. With, yes. Uh, and the, the department values education. Um, I know the interventional section certainly values both education and research. Uh, I was fortunate to be a part of it for, for the year I did my structural heart training. Um, do you see that uh, commonly across divisions or across departments? We're very fortunate in that we have a number of, uh, uh, we have a fair amount of infrastructure that can be used for getting messages out. We have this amazing studio that really has just gone in. I don't know if it's fully functional yet, but we're, we're gonna be using that for uh, interviews and for uh, broadcasts. We have uh, the Mighty Center, mm -hmm. which is uh, basically a large, laborat large educational laboratory where we can do cadaveric work, we can do angiographic work. We've got a uh, fully functional 1.5T magnet for MRIs right next to uh, a fully functional uh, Zego angiographic unit I mean, truthfully, in times of emergency, we could use it clinically. It's so well established. But it's great. It's got uh, broadcast transmission uh, capabilities. We routinely bring people in there for a variety of educational conferences, a lot of hands-on experience, a lot of cadaveric work, a lot of animal work, uh, a lot of dissections. Yes, I think Mighty, a facility like Mighty, I don't think exists anywhere else, right? I mean, is the, is the largest simulation facility in the country, is that right? It is. That's incredible. And it's, um, so who came up with the idea for establishing something uh, like this Mighty? This actually uh, was the idea of the chief of general surgery, who, um, you know, has got a large presence in surgical education. And it's, uh, I mean, it's obviously paid dividends to, so has, uh, do the interventional fellows go there or, or? They do, we use it to teach basic skills, which, you know, the truth is most of them have, yeah. but uh, we use it to teach uh, jugular artery cannulation. We, uh, where Huey Lin is trying to uh, establish a uh, cadaveric model for radial artery catheterization trying to create a, in a cadaveric arm, a pulsatile radial artery uh, with the ability to bring uh, wires and catheters up into the torso. Mm -hmm. 
Um, we teach TEEs there. Yeah. Has, uh, have any of these structural heart procedures found their way to MITEI yet? Haven't yet. yet. Haven't well, yet. We've, we've put simulators there, but yeah. I mean, the truth is you can put a simulator in your garage if you want, <laughs> if you have room. <laughs> yes. Yes, no, and um, Methodist, has, Methodist has a lot of, Houston Methodist Bakey Heart Vascular Center, I get that right, has a lot of room. Um, so, you know, coming back, to, coming back to careers as an academic interventional cardiologist, so, so you see yourself now and you, you've, you see other early careers now, that, you know, that are flourishing or getting established, and you see mid-careers. Um, do, and maybe it's not fair to compare because times have changed. No, it's uh, very fair. I mean, what, what do we do that hasn't changed? So, I mean, in, in comparison to when, when you started out and what you see coming out now in terms of, you know, what people are doing, is there, is there any difference? Do you see any difference? Yeah, I do. I, I think, obviously, we've gotten a lot more digital. Um, Truth is, uh, people coming out now are much more facile with the digital world than I am. Uh, you know, back in the day when you, for example, if you submitted an abstract to the ACC, you had to get your data well in advance. You spent a tremendous amount of time with a typewriter and a box that you measured out with a ruler and drew on a piece of typing paper uh, typing it so that you'd uh, meet the word count. And let me tell you, I got really skillful at doing it. So when we use the electronic things available today, I have no problem. I can take any abstract, uh, even if it's as long as War and Peace, and make it fit. Um, I don't know how easy that is for you guys, but uh, uh, we learned that, and you know, you, you use whiteout, you use uh, you know, type overs, but you had to make sure you had the right font. There were tricks, but that's for an example of uh, things that we do digitally now that we didn't even dream of. And that's you know, that, that's the simplest example. You're very active in the uh, social media world. Um, that's completely different. We still, as a professional group, have to answer the question, how meaningful is that? Because, you know, data come out now very quickly, mm -hmm. but they come out in an unfiltered fashion. So uh, peer review is something that's very different. Um, you know, every statement used to be scrutinized very carefully to make sure that it was supported by the data that were presented. The data themselves were scrutinized very carefully to make sure that they were internally consistent, that uh, you know, the statistical analyses were done accurately. That's much tougher to do now uh, because of the multiple sources that things go through, the fact that they don't necessarily have the kind of filters that they did, and the fact that uh, they come through so much more quickly now. 
course, you know, the other side of this is data can be crunched more quickly. We understand uh, some of the statistical techniques uh, a lot better than we did. There are many newer statistical techniques. So, you know, it's not so single-faceted. I don't want to sound grumpy at all about it because I'm not. But I think it's, it's something we've got to work through. We've got to figure out what sort of filtration do we need. Yes, I mean, so, um, so, so, so social media is, is, is out there and is, has, has become, you know, journals have, um, have embraced it. And um, <clears throat> the other thing is there are so many journals too right now. I mean, there, there's an ever-increasing uh, number of journals and they just keep growing. What, what do you have to say about that? What do you think about that? Uh, you know, I mean, it, there is a family of journals with every major brand of journals that you that you take, do you do we need that many journals? What's happening? I mean, it's no, we don't. We we don't. I mean, we need to we need papers to be well written. We need them to be thoughtful. Um, you know, the reason we've got so many journals is several folds. Number one, it, you know, we have a lot of data now uh, because of modern electronics. And the fact that many studies are so large, it's easy to do multiple sub-studies, much easier than it used to be. So the data, the data are bigger. Uh, the numbers can be crunched more quickly. Uh, there are more people to do it. And remember, the larger your sample size, the more analyses uh, you're able to do. Number two, we've got more people who want to get, who are interested in doing analyses and want to get them published. And that's got to be recognized as well. Part of what we do is we bring up younger people and part of the way we encourage them is say, look, you can write a paper. You can get it published. We want that to happen. And then number three, there's prestige that goes along with editing a journal. And uh, so there's motivation to create new journals. The downside of it, of course, is the more analyses you do, the more papers that are published, uh, the more likely it is that some results are going to be spurious. That's got to be recognized. The fact that something is in print somewhere doesn't necessarily validate it. And so there's information overload as well. Yes. I mean, you can't possibly keep up with every cardiac journal that's out there now. So. You know, in, in concluding um, our, our discussion, and you know, thank you for your time. I think it's been, a, it's been, it's been great having you. Um, what advice would you give to someone in, in early career like myself and in someone in mid-career is like, how do you constantly um, keep a barometer of evaluation for your career? as you're progressing along? Because you know, years can slip by and you can get busy with family or you can get busy clinically. Um, well, years do slip by. And you do get busy clinically, you do get busy with family. And this happens. This is the way it's meant to happen. How do you still keep um, you know, your academic career in track if, you, if you've truly signed up to be an academic an, an academic? You know, how, do you, how do you keep that in track? Well, do you, you have to Keep in mind, what are you going to be judged on? You're judged on the number of papers you write. I'm not. 
I'm judged on how many people do I bring up and what do I do in studies globally. And so for that, you've got to keep your ear open to what your peers are thinking about you, how often they come to you for advice. I'm talking about your peers, not, not the, necessarily the people that you've trained. And do, do people listen to you when you talk? And, um, you know, and, um, so, so thank you for that. And then on a, on a concluding note, um, I have heard from fellows, the, the current fellows uh, at the Houston Methodist DeBakey Heart and Vascular Center that the Journal Club is, is still going strong. Yeah, it uh, is. <laughs> it, was, it, was one of the, it was one of my most, uh, you know, favorite uh, features of the fellowship. You know, we wrote about it uh, yes. in, in Jack's yeah, Interventions. Yeah, no, it, it's pretty neat. <laughs> And, um, you know, I would like to actually like to come when I can. You are welcome. Remember, uh, actually, anyone listening is welcome. It's the third Thursday of every month, with a few exceptions. Um, and it's, There are uh, some tricks to it that I will not reveal publicly. <laughs> and it's, um, and it's, it's, the, it's the same menu. It's the same location. It's, you eat the same salad. I eat the same salad. Yeah, same <laughs> salad for me every time. Same location, just, you know, look, if you're going to vary locations, people are going to show up in the wrong place, and that, that, that becomes miserable. Yeah. So when, I'm, when, am I, uh, when am I expected in Houston again, Dr. Clement? Let's see. I think it's the 16th of October, but I'm not... 16th? I'm not sure. Happens to be my birthday. Well, oh, wow. <laughs> Let's check, actually. Let's check. Is, uh, is October 16th a Thursday? I'm going to check I right thought now. I... I gave the date to someone else. It's uh, Wednesday. Oh, so, so it's the, not the, the, seventh, the, the 17th. Is that the third Thursday? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, we've got, we've got How five, do you use this thing? We've got five Thursdays in October, so 17th is the... Okay. I'll, I'll get my tickets booked. Okay. Yeah, and there, there are some tricks for the evening that I, I said that I'm not going to reveal publicly. Sure. Well, Dr. Kleiman, thank you again. Thanks for coming and talking to us on Parallax, and you know, we wish you all the best. And I obviously will keep coming back to you. Okay, great. This thank is you. called Parallax. Yes. Learn something new every day. Dear cardiologists, we want to make this podcast about you and for you. So please email us your critical thoughts, comments, and questions at podcast at radcliffe-group.com and visit uscjournal.com for more information. You can also follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram at Radcliffe Cardiology for daily updates. Join thousands of cardiologists and become a Radcliffian by registering to radcliffecardiology.com. You will receive regular newsletters and gain access to hundreds of expert interviews, educational webinars, clinical cases, and peer-reviewed articles from our six medical review journals on general cardiology, interventional cardiology, arrhythmia and electrophysiology, cardiac failure, and vascular and endovascular surgery. Thank you.